Hi friends, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill Bible Church and today we are launching into a new series. We're going to be walking through over the next weeks 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 and we're calling this series Christ and Culture. And if the title doesn't give it away already, this series is really about how do I live out my Christian faith when the culture around me is pulling me in different directions. When, because of the life I'm experiencing in this world, I'm having to figure out what does it look like to live for and stand for and represent Jesus in in this situation, in that situation, in this different moment, because the world is throwing so many different possibilities and problems and, and moments at me. And this is actually the same question that the Corinthian Christians are asking. Um, They are asking this same thing. How do we live as Christ followers here in this city? And even though they wrote this letter over 2,000 years ago, it's never been more relevant than it is for us right now. Because as Christians in America, Christians in Oregon, Christians in Portland, we must ask the hard questions about what does it look like to represent and live for Jesus here where we live today. So I'm personally excited about this series because it's going to challenge us and I hope that it's going to change us. And we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to get right to it today. We're covering an entire chapter, entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to dive right in in verse 1. Paul says this, Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Paul, is, as again, he's writing to the Corinthians here about an issue that they have asked him about. We've talked about this before, but 1 Corinthians, this letter we're looking at, is actually 2 Corinthians. It's Paul's response to a letter that this church wrote to him. And so he's responding to some of their questions. And one of their questions is about food sacrificed to idols. Not sure if you have a question about food sacrificed to idols. You probably don't. But nevertheless, it's going to be relevant to us in the end. But to understand what's happening here, we we need to know some things. First of all, in first century Corinth, we need to know that this was a polytheistic culture. This was a culture where people worshipped many different gods. They didn't have this idea that God, there was one God, there was many gods. And because there were many gods, all over the city there were temples. In our world, like in our culture here in Portland, there's a, a restaurant on the corner Um, of every street, it seems. Well, in Corinth, there weren't restaurants. There were temples. And these were temples to all sorts of different gods. Zeus, Hermes, Venus, Aphrodite, Poseidon, Apollo, Artemis. The list goes on and on and on. And as a regular part of ancient Corinthian life, people would go to these temples to offer sacrifices. And you would offer sacrifices at a temple for a couple different reasons. One, to gain favor with a particular God for something that you wanted or something that you needed. You'd need rain for your crops, and so you'd sacrifice to Zeus, the God over the weather. You needed fertility in your marriage, and so you'd sacrifice to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. You needed safe passage on a voyage that you were taking overseas or maybe one of your family members was doing this and so you'd go to Poseidon the god of the sea you needed healing for some infirmity for you or one of your children and so you'd sacrifice to Eclipius 
the God of medicine. Now, in addition to sacrificing for specific needs, people would also offer sacrifices to celebrate special occasions. Things like weddings or holidays or, or, or festival days. These were common occasions for people to offer temple sacrifices for celebration um, around an event. And here's how it would work. You would go to the temple and you would bring an animal. And you'd bring an animal because animals were valuable. Meat was valuable. It wasn't like our world where you can meet, eat meat at every meal if you want to. It was not how it was back then. Meat in the ancient world was a bit of a luxury. And so a third of the animal, you'd bring an animal, and a third of that animal was burned on the altar to the god. You'd bring a goat, and a third of that goat was burned on the altar to that god. So that's the first third. But the second third, the second like third of the goat, the third of the animal that you brought, would be used for a party. And here's what you'd do. You'd invite all your family and friends, and you'd throw a big party. An invitation would go out. You'd send one out. It would say, you know, why? We're, you know, it, we're, it's a harvest festival. Where? It's going to be at the, the temple of Demeter, the goddess of agriculture. When? It's going to be this Saturday. What? There's going to be a goat sacrificed, so do not miss it. And because meat was valuable and people, you know, wanted it and they liked to party, they would show up. They'd show up at your little temple sacrifice party that you're throwing. So there's a third for the God, a third, you know, ish for this party that you would throw. And then whatever was left over, that final third would go up for sale in the market. And so as you can imagine, during festival days, when a lot of people were offering sacrifices at the temples, there was suddenly a big influx of meat in the market. And so prices would go down. Supply of meat would go up and the prices would go down. It worked in the ancient world just like it works in our world today. Supply, demand, right? So now meat's up, prices are down. And in this moment, if you were a lower class family or even a, you know, a lower middle class family, you could finally afford to buy some meat. But what if you're a Christian? What if you're a Christian in these moments? What if you're a Christian and you're invited to one of these parties? What if you're a Christian and now suddenly there's ribeye in the market for $6.99 because it's been sacrificed to idols and the normal price is $15.99 when it comes straight from the farm? Can, is it okay for you to buy the, like, the reduced priced ribeye? Can you go and get the cheap meat or not? And so these Corinthian Jesus followers are writing to Paul and they're saying, what do we do? How do we live as Christ followers in this moment when we're faced with this food sacrifice to idols? Paul writes, now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. First of all, I want you to notice the phrase, we all possess knowledge, because it's in quotes. And it's in quotes because Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. He, he's saying something that they've said. He's laying out their thinking, their argument, and here's what it was. They said, as followers of Jesus, we have knowledge. 
We know the truth. And the truth is that there is only one true God. And so all these other gods are no gods at all. They're not even real. So, this is in their minds, so meat sacrificed to them has been sacrificed to nothing. It's just superstition and it doesn't have power over us because we have been set free in Christ. So, lamb chops are on sale. Let's do this thing. Party at Poseidon's. Let's go, right? That's the Corinthian way of thinking. And Paul's answer to them um, is complex, and he's going to get to it in a minute. But first, but first, you'll notice that he sort of lays out his, his thesis, the overarching principle that he really wants them as followers of Jesus to remember and embrace. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Paul says, you might think you know something. You might have logical thinking. You might even have good theology on some level, but if it's not couched in love, you have missed the heart of God. And Paul's going to come back to this, but first he's going to challenge the Corinthians on what they think they know. Verse 4. So then, he says, about eating food sacrificed to idols. Let's get real specific about your question. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Notice again the quotes. Most scholars here also believe Paul is quoting the Corinthians. He's saying, this is what you believe. This is what you're saying. This is, this is your theology of sorts. And then Paul's response to what they've been saying. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. Let me break it down for you. Paul's answer to these Christians is your thinking is wrong and it's also right. You've got some good theology and some bad theology. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about, about tension we talked about nuanced thinking. Paul is going to kind of dive in here with the Corinthians and he's going to attempt to nuance their thinking. On the one hand, he's saying, you're wrong. And he says this because verse five, there are many gods and many lords. They say, there's only one God. He says, well, well there are many gods and many lords. Paul is reminding them here of biblical truth. This is what the Bible teaches. Paul knows his Bible. He is steeped in the theology of the Old Testament. Think for a minute about one example here, the Ten Commandments. Do you know how the Ten Commandments begin? Ten Commandments are pretty uh, like central and essential uh, part of Scripture. And this is Exodus 20. This is right out of the Ten Commandments. This is the beginning of them. It says, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's like the intro to the Ten Commandments. Then he gives commandment one. First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice that God doesn't say there are no other gods in this world. 
Notice that God doesn't say, like, I'm the only spiritual force out there. No, in commandment number one, he says, make me your God, not them your God. Here's another thing. Some of you will have have noticed this before. God is often referred to throughout the scriptures as the most high God. Have you heard that? Have you read that? He's the most high high God. Like, he's not the only God, but he's the highest God. He's, he's the most high. He's above all the other gods. Friends, here's what the Bible teaches. There are real spiritual beings in this world. Sometimes they're called angels and demons. Sometimes they're called princes, like in the book of Daniel. Sometimes they're called principalities and powers. That's Paul in, in the New Testament. Jesus talks about them as authorities. He uses the word authorities. There are authorities. And all of these are names for real spiritual beings with real spiritual power. And they are, in a sense, little g gods. This is why at the beginning of verse 5 in our passage today, Paul calls them so-called gods. Did you catch that? These so-called gods. They They have power. They have influence. And in this fallen, broken world, they even have rule and reign over over different things which is why Paul also calls them lords because lords rule lords reign and so what Paul is saying is this Corinthian Christians you are wrong to completely dismiss these spiritual powers you are wrong to pretend like it's just God and there's there's nothing else out there but you're also right verse six he says For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, some scholars think this was actually a creed of the early church, but you notice how it points to God and Jesus Christ as the one through whom all things came. Paul Paul is saying this. Yes, there are lower gods. There are these created gods, these so-called little g gods, but none of them is capital G God. They are all created, but he's the creator. They have power, yeah, but he has ultimate power. He alone is the eternal one. They've all, they all were just created by him. He's always existed. He alone is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. So yes, Corinthian Christians, you are right to understand that our God is greater and our God is stronger and our God is higher than any other. We sing that in church, if you recognize that song. Yeah, there's only one creator God. But that does not mean that we can ignore the principalities and powers and authorities and demons and so-called gods of this world. So, so he's correcting them. He's nuancing their thinking. It's not as simple, he's saying, as just saying, you know, there's only God and that's it, so now I can do whatever. No, verse 7. He's nuanced their thinking. But not everyone, he says, possesses this knowledge. Not everyone is mature enough spiritually to understand the nuances of what is happening in these temples and with this meat. Some people, he continues in verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it 
as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. You see, part of the problem here is that the Greeks believed that when you went to the temple and when you ate this sacrificed meat, you, you weren't just going for a party, right? You were connecting with that God. Like that, through the food, there was a connection built between you and that God. This is what the, the, the pagan Corinthians believed. They believed that you were actually ingesting and inviting that God to do his or her work in your life. And so Paul is saying this, some of you knowledgeable Jesus followers, you're able to go and you're able to eat that meat. And in your mind, you know that God is your Lord and that you are not inviting any other spiritual power into your life in any way. You'll be able to eat that meat and go like, I'm for Jesus, I'm all for him, I'm not for them. And this food doesn't change that. And Paul even says that, you know, it's not the food, right? It's not the food. However, There are some less mature Jesus followers in your midst, Paul is saying, and they have just recently been saved and they've been saved right out of this polytheistic pagan worship and in their minds, these idols and the gods that are behind them are still very real. They don't know as much as you know. They're not as mature and so Paul says, be careful, verse nine, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? A couple things here I want to point out about this portion of the passage. First of all, this is where we get the, the famous stumbling block principle that people love to throw around in church. If you've been around church for a while, you've heard people talk about like other people stumbling them or being a stumbling block. But people often use this term in the wrong way. Richard B. Hayes says this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. The stumbling block principle is often erroneously invoked to place limits on the behaviors of some Christians whose conduct offends other Christians with stricter behavioral standards. In other words, it's used to sort of say, I want you to, to follow the Bible the way I follow the Bible. I want you to have like the same understanding of scripture that I have. I want you to have the same like moral standards in Christ that I do. And if, I, and if you don't, if you don't like follow the rules the way I follow the rules, then I'll just say, you know, your behavior is stumbling me. You're causing me to stumble by doing something that I don't think is right to do. Let me, let me give you an example. Smoking. Let me give, smoking is my example. When, when my uh, oldest daughter was, was very young, my wife was very clear with her that smoking was not a good thing. Like she just didn't want our kids to smoke. And so she, was, she would tell Skylar, like, smoking's bad. It's not good for you. It's not, I mean, it's addicting. And then and it, it can, like, give you cancer. Like, it's not good for you. It's a bad thing. And I think this was, like, the first moral principle that my daughter really latched on to. Um, she had no problem, like, stealing food out of the cupboard. But she totally latched on to, like, smoking is bad. And she latched on to it so much so that when she was, like, four, we would be out in public and we would see someone like, like smoking somewhere. And she would be like, smoker, you're a smoke. You're, 
You see, that's bad. You're a bad person. Smoking is bad. And she would literally like tell people, like just random strangers, that smoking was bad and they shouldn't smoke. And it was to the point where we had to kind of really like dial her back and say, honey, whoa, just take a chill pill on the smoking thing. But in her mind, it was like a huge deal. So, but, but smoking is my example. Yeah, we don't, I don't think of it that way and we're not that aggro about it, but our daughter was for a season. But let's just say for argument's sake that you came across another Christian smoking in the parking, of, parking lot of a restaurant. Now, for you, you might say, I think, that's, I think that's the wrong call. I think that's actually out of bounds and not appropriate for a Christian to do. And, and you might even have a strong opinion about it. But friends, that's not a weak, you don't have a weak conscience. You have a strong conscience. You actually have convictions. You have some convictions about what's right and wrong in this area. And you have some reasons why you believe what you believe. You know, I, I saw this person the other day outside of McMiniman smoking and that stumbled me. Oh, wow, it stumbled you? I mean, like you're considering walking away from your faith in Jesus because of that other Christians smoking? That you're thinking about like abandoning your faith? Thinking about going back to like a different way of life and a different allegiance to someone or something else? Is, is that really where you're at? Like, are you stumbled? Well, no, but I'm, you know, I'm upset because I interpret scripture to say that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and we should care for them and cigarettes are bad. Well, that, that's fine, but you, you're not stumbled. <laughs> you're offended. Those are different not stumbled, you're offended. And if you are offended, then, then do what it says to do in the scriptures in Matthew 18 and go and talk to that person about the thing that you're offended about. See, to be offended and to be stumbled are not the same. Paul is not talking here about being offended. What Paul is talking about here is doing something with or in front of young believers that might cause them to abandon Christ and go back to an old way of living. That's the stumbling block principle. Be careful, he says, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul, Paul is challenging the Christians in Corinth here. He's saying, sure, you can justify it. You can justify going to these temples and eating this meat and buying it from the market. You can justify it. Sure, you have freedom in Christ. Yes, you do. Sure, you've even got some, some decent theology to back up your behavior. But, but your witness is a higher priority than your rights. Write that down. Your witness is a higher priority than your rights. One of the things that this last season in our nation has revealed to me in a, in a painful way is that we as American Christians are too often more concerned about our rights than our witness we're all about our rights and standing up for our rights and fighting for our rights. And yet, I think God wants us to stand up for and fight for our witness in the world. 
Our rights don't matter as much as our witness. And that's what Paul is saying to these first century Corinthian Christians. Here's another thing that this passage teaches us. Rights and rules are nothing without the posture of love. Your rights and your rules, even if they are right, are nothing without the posture of love. Check this out, friends. This is going to blow your mind. Acts chapter 15. Some of you know about Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 tells us about this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council was a group of leaders in the early church who gathered to make a huge decision. And their decision was this. What are the requirements for Gentile Christians who are now stepping into faith in Jesus Christ? So they weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. And, but now they're becoming followers of Jesus. Like what do they have to do to, to get in, to join the club? What are the requirements for them? And, and the big issue on the table was circumcision. Like if you were 35 and you converted to Jesus, did you need to go get circumcised? And so this is a big moment for some people. This is a big decision. But listen, listen to what they say. The, 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 the group meets, the council gathers, and they come out and they make this statement. Here's what we've decided. Acts chapter 15. It, is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So it actually ends. Farewell. I thought that was like a funny, cool way to end that. Farewell. Like that's it. That simple. Piece of cake. So think about that. The Jerusalem council gathers and says, like, there's only a few things that we want you to be careful of and watch out for. And the very first thing they say is, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. And then now, years later, Paul gets a letter from the Corinthians asking about this very thing. What about food sacrificed to idols? How easy would it have been for him to just say, hey, see the letter from the, from the Jerusalem council. I've attached a copy for you. In case you missed it, here's their decision abstain from food sacrificed to idols period case closed let's move on to another subject but Paul doesn't do that Paul gets this question from them and he doesn't give them the very simple straightforward answer that came right out of the council instead he writes about this subject for three chapters three chapters he could have just said no why does Paul do this friends here's why Because Paul knows that following Jesus is not just about the rules. Paul knows that following Jesus is about understanding life through the lens of the gospel. It's about knowing that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's about laying down our rights for the care and concern and benefit of others. You see, Paul doesn't want them to understand rules around meat sacrifice to idols. Paul wants them to understand the overarching principle and the overarching law of love. Let me ask you a question. What would you do for love? Like, like when you really love someone, when you truly love them. Think about like that moment when you were first dating your spouse if you're married or, or, if, or like that moment with your brother or sister when you're extremely proud of them or with your parents or with your kids, right? When you really love someone, what will you do? You'll give up your rights. You will sacrifice and lay down your preferences. Why? 
Why? Because that's what love does. And you love them. I'll give you an example. The other night, I had had a busy day. I had been running around and I was finally at home in my jam jams, cozied up in bed with my iPad, all ready to watch my show before I just like cashed it in and coasted off to sleep. I was super excited to finally be in this place. Do you ever have that feeling where you finally get to bed and it's like, yes, I'm here. And I'm in bed and all of a sudden my oldest daughter comes in and she says, she starts talking to me. And the plan was my son was at baseball practice. I had taken him to baseball practice. I had dropped him off and he wasn't getting done with baseball practice till late in the evening, like after nine o'clock. And so the plan was for Skylar to go and pick him up. My oldest daughter was going to be like the ride home. She was going to go out and get him. And she comes in and she's like, ah, I'm so tired. And it's a long day at school. It's the first week of school. And I had volleyball today. And dad, will you please go pick up Dax tonight? And I was like, I do not want to get out of this bed. It's the last thing I want to do. I do not want to go and pick up my son, right? And, and I felt like it was my right to stay in bed. It was my strong preference to stay in bed. It, it, was, it was well within like my, my bounds of authority to say, no, you go pick up your brother. I could have easily justified that decision for lots of reasons. But what did I do? I got out of bed and I went and picked up my son. Why? Because I love my daughter. Because I love my daughter. So I wanted to, to lay down some of my rights for her benefit. Now, I'll just say this in case my wife's watching. She does this much more than I do. So let's just make that clear. But that's what love does. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, sure, you can justify your behavior with some knowledge or theology or way of thinking, but are you loving? Are you modeling Jesus? Are you living out and being fueled by the gospel? He's saying it's not just about like what to do in this one moment. It's about this overarching way of living every part of your life that won't just apply to food sacrifice to idols. It'll apply to other things in their world and in ours. Listen to how Paul closes out this section. This is verse 13. This is the last verse of the chapter. Therefore, he says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Notice that he doesn't say, I'll never eat meat sacrificed to idols again. He says, I won't eat meat again at all. If it's an issue, if it's a problem for them, if it stumbles them or trips them up in any way, I won't eat meat at all. I mean, I'll go straight vegan if I need to. Now, some of you are like, that'd be a healthy choice anyway, but that's a different sermon. Friends, hear me on this. For Paul, this is not about following the correct rules. He's about allowing the love of Jesus to so fully and significantly transform him that he begins to look like Jesus, that he begins to live like Jesus, that he begins to love like his Savior loved him. And friends, Jesus loved radically. Jesus had all the freedom in the world. Jesus had all the rights of the entire universe. And what did he do? He came to earth and he laid down those, right, those rights for our benefit. He said, it's not about his rights. 
It was about our salvation, our eternity. See, it wasn't about him. It was about us. How can Paul say, if it stumbles a brother or sister, then I will never eat meat again? He can say that because he's living with a deep connection to the God who gave up everything for him. He's not forgotten the fact that that God gave up everything for him. So how could he not just give up meat for a brother or sister? How could he just not lay down his rights in this one little area for someone else that they might like not be tripped up or stumbled on their journey towards Jesus? That's so easy for him because God gave up everything. As we close today, Let me ask you, are you living by the law of love? Are you letting the love that Jesus poured out on you flow through your life and out onto other people? What rights, what privileges, what preferences are you clinging to when God wants you to loosen your grip by reminding you of the love that he's poured out on you? Never forget this, church. Knowledge puffs up. Being right puffs up. Like holding on to your privileges puffs up. But love, love builds up. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would, you'd convict us with this message, that you would show us as a church family where we can lay down our our rights and our privileges and our preferences to sacrifice for others, to really show the sacrificial love that you've given us. Help us to live this way in the world, not, not as it relates to food sacrifice to idols, but as it relates to the issues of our day. Show us and remind us, Holy Spirit, help us to see, give us eyes to see and ears to hear when we are clinging to our rights, when we really, when we really need to lay down our preferences. That's our prayer, God. Do that work in us. It can only happen through your strength and power in our lives. We need you. We ask for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.